Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. I want to remind you, we left off last week at the conclusion of chapter 4. We read this verse. It's where Esther finally declares those memorable words, some of the most well-known words of the book of Esther, a lot of people are familiar with, in which she instructs her cousin, her uncle Mordecai, the man who raised her like a dad, and she says, all right, we'll go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days and nights, Uh, and I and my young women will do the same. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. You recall, it was illegal for anyone to appear before the king without first being summoned to come before the king, even for the queen. And so she had been told, you need to go to the king. You need to let him know that your people are going to be uh, executed because of that decree, and you need to speak with him, or you need to plead on behalf of the Jewish people. And her response at that time was, I'm not allowed to do that. No one's allowed to do that. You're not allowed to go before the king unless he invites you to come, and anyone who does could be killed. And you may, you, may, you may recall Mordecai's important words where he just simply said, look, if you don't go, you're going to die and your family's going to die. And God will find another way to deliver the Jewish people because he said that he would and he will. But who knows whether you came into the kingdom for such a time as this. And so with that, she says, all right, she makes that courageous decision. She goes before the king. Now, if you look at chapter five, let me read the first few verses Because remember, she had told Mordecai, tell the Jews to fast for three days. Here now, verse 1, on the third day, so the fast is now coming to a conclusion, Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, we, as I said, no one's allowed to come before the king unless summoned, and yet she does. And she goes there. She decides to go to represent the Jewish people, but not before first fasting. We assume praying as well. Chapter 5 then begins. The time has come. And she follows through. And the first point that I want to draw to your attention is this. She follows through. Three days earlier, she had determined what she was going to do. And how often do we make these determinations? We go to retreats and things like that. And you know what? I'm going to start having a quiet time. And then 7 a.m. comes the next morning, and we don't follow through. How often we make these commitments. I'm going to get involved with a group like Restoring Hearts. I'm going to get outside of my own comfort zone. I'm going to serve in one way or another. And three days later, a week later, and we don't follow through. Follow through is just as important as the commitment. And here our friend, she follows through. She puts on, as it says in verse 2 there, or verse 1, she puts on the royal robes, and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She's right outside of the king's bedroom or his meeting room, whatever it might exactly be. And this is the do-or-die moment. If this was a movie, this would be, you know, the music would be building up. This is a high-tension point. It's a do-or-die moment here. Will the king accept her? Or will the king say, how dare she come into my presence? I don't care who you are, whether you're the queen or not. And as we see in verse 2, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. 
And then Esther approached and she touched the tip of the scepter. There, there's obviously something going on there. That means something. And she goes, she touches that. And I've jotted in my notes, whew, that's probably what she's thinking. Whew, that's hard to write. I don't even know how to spell it. I had to look it up. Um, rather than ordering his, her execution, the king extends the golden scepter. And that allows her to come into her presence. And I imagine, oh, finally, let out you know, the breath that she had been holding in her for the last three days. But notice the king goes even further. Verse 3, he extends an opportunity to her to request whatever she wants. So she clearly won his favor here. And he says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Notice, it, it shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. So something about the queen significantly moves the king. As she's all gussied up there in her royal garbs and all of that, something about her, he's like, wow, look at her. But ultimately, we know what moves the heart of the king is the Lord moves the heart of the king. There's a proverb, it's Proverbs chapter 21, we referenced it in the past, and it says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, that he turns it wherever he will. And the ultimate reason why she is favored by her husband here, and that sounds ridiculous, but it's just the situation that they have there. The ultimate reason why the king allows her to enter in is because the king's heart has been moved like a stream of water. The Lord moved it the direction that he want, that she would, that he would, excuse me, open up the door to let her in. And so she has now, if you will, this blank check, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. I don't know if he really intended to give her up to half the kingdom, but essentially whatever you want. And so verse four, Esther said, well, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther had asked. Now, rather than immediately jumping into it and saying, well, here's what I need. Jewish people, genocide, you got to step in, help me. Rather than immediately jump into that, rather she says, you know what, let's have a feast. And I'd like it to be you and myself and your prime minister, Haman, to come to this particular feast. I think she demonstrates a bit of tact and a bit of caution here by slowly moving forward in this regard, by having this feast. It wouldn't be a whole lot of people. It'll be the three of them. It'll be her and her husband and this fellow Haman there. It seems she wants him to be present when she ultimately discloses this wicked plan of his. And so she says, all right, let's have a feast. Now, we know the king likes his feast. This is the fourth feast in the book of Esther that we see recorded. And I imagine they have more. Remember, one of them was a six-month-long feast. Another one was a seven-day-long feast. And so she says, let's have a feast. And he says, that's a great idea. I love feast. Let's have a feast. And so he jumps right on it. He says, bring Haman quickly, verse 5b, the second portion of 5. So the king and Haman, they came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So the king, he must realize that she didn't risk her life by coming before him to invite him to a meal, that there's got to be something more to this. Either that, or he's so impressed by the meal, he says, here's another blank check. What do you want? You know, what else possible? He says, he promises that, Whatever she requests will be granted. Whatever she requests will be fulfilled. Verse 7, then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let's have another feast tomorrow. 
And that's what she says there. She says, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. I, I really don't see any other way of reading this than she chickens out in that particular moment. That's what it seems like to me, that she chickens out here. Maybe she wasn't ready. Uh, I, I wrote it down, but I let, you know, back in the room, I'll, I'll tell you tomorrow kind of thing. And so she says, well, let's have a second feast. She's going to reveal at that particular time. Uh, she wants another feast for Haman and uh, for her husband. Now, from her perspective, or us looking at her, it may seem that she is chickening, chickening out, but she's not chickening out in the sense of ultimately God is the one keeping her mouth shut because it's still not time yet. We're close. We're getting really close. Remember we talked a, a while back when Mordecai saved the day and he wasn't rewarded for saving the day? Well, God made, made him wait seven years to receive his reward because that was the proper timing seven years later. Now we're one day away from that. And we're close to it, but we're not there. And so, yeah, I can't help but wonder if part of her chickening out is also a sense of her realizing, you know what, it's not yet God's timing. And so in tune with where God is going, she pulls back and she says, let's have another feast tomorrow. I don't know how long these feasts are going to go. We're going to be here every day for the next month or something. Uh, but it's not God's timing yet. And so she said, let's do it again tomorrow, verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now, we've been talking about Mordecai. If you haven't been with us, Mordecai is her uncle. He's uh, a lesser official there at the city gate. And everyone else will bow down to this guy, Haman. Haman is the prime minister of the empire. Everyone else bows down for, to him in reverence, but also in worship. And Mordecai the Jew won't do either. He will not revere him, and he will not, certainly not bow down to worship him. And it drives Haman crazy. So much so that Haman decides all the Jewish people, the couple million of them or more, must be killed because this one guy won't do it. So here he is now. He's having the time of his life. He is the only guy invited to a private meal with the king and with the queen. He's delighting in it. He's something else. He's walking out. His chest is big. You know, he thinks he's something hot. And there's that guy. I hate that guy. He just won't bow down to me. I can't stand it. And it says there, as it says, that he uh, is filled with wrath against Mordecai. You know, I just see how sad it is, how easily swayed Haman's heart is by the circumstances of his life. Just how easily swayed it is. Swayed it is. When everything is great and wonderful, he's filled with great joy and all that, but then one guy won't bow down to him, and now he's filled with wrath. All of his joy has been robbed away from him. It's an incredible indicator of Haman's own insecurities, that his self-worth is so tied into and can be so easily taken away by how other people respond to him. Haman demonstrates those deep-seated insecurities that unless everybody honors him, he won't be happy. And so as it says in verse 9, he's filled with wrath. This should have been one of the greatest days of his life, a little bit later on in verse 12, he will point out that he alone has been invited to dine privately with the king and queen, not once, but twice. In so many ways, he's reached the pinnacle of society, or at least he thought he had, and he allows this one thing to rob him of all the joy. It's been said, someone said it, that you can tell the measure of a person by the size of the things that irritate him that you can tell the measure of a person by the size of the things that irritate him. In fact, in my walk with Christ, 
I know when I'm not doing so well in my walk with Christ based on the size of things that irritate me. Those little minor things or whatever that just start getting on me and I'm easily, and usually my wife reminds me, you know, that, boy, you're really off the mark here, you know. Why don't you go upstairs and think about it? And somehow, <laughs> somehow I become a toddler in the family and I go upstairs and I think about these things. But that usually is an indicator that I've been running so much and not taking the time to nurture my relationship with Christ. And because I haven't taken the time to nurture my relationship with Christ, these minor little things eat in my flesh, and my flesh begins to come out. And so again, it's been said, you can tell the measure of man by the size of things that irritate him. Here is one guy, a relatively small offense, when you consider there are millions and millions of people that are bowing down to this guy, but one guy won't. And how that can rob him of all his joy, and instead fill him with wrath and so filled with wrath verse 10 though notice it says nevertheless he restrained himself I'm sure he would have liked to pulled out a sword right there and stabbed Mordecai but he restrains himself and it says in verse 10 that he he went home and he he sent and he brought his friends and his wife Zeresh to gather with him he goes home gathers up his friends verse 11 notice and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the kingdom. He, and then notice verse 12. He throws in, this is what makes him the most awesome in his mindset. In verse 12, he says this, And even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared, and tomorrow she's invited me back again. So this guy gathers all his friends together, and he says, I'm glad you're all here. Let me tell you how wonderful I am. I, I'm thinking, is this guy for real? That he, is, is this conceited that he would do this? Look at all the wealth that I have. Look at all the money. I have 10 sons, which was considered sort of this mark of honor. Look at the, the titles that the king has given me. How he has advanced me above everyone else. And I alone am able to go and have these particular meals. He's got all this stuff that is going for him. And yet Mordecai has robbed him of all of the supposed joy. And I, I think that's actually what he is saying here. Look, I got all this stuff going for me, but this one man robs me of my joy. And so it says in verse 13, all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Again, how sad that one person could have that type of an impact on him. Now, that's the problem. There's this Mordecai guy. His wife, notice, she offers up a plan, and she seems like a real sweetie here, she says, kill him, or whatever. Oh my, honey. Verse 14, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made in the morning. Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Now, 50 cubits high, that's about 75 feet in the air. 75 feet is really, really high. She says, build this huge gallows, and it's not like ours where we would hang a person with a rope. Again, they're impaled upon this, and so you can imagine a person impaled upon a telephone pole 75 feet up in the air for everyone to see. Who thinks of ideas like this? This lady. <laughs> I think she's a bit disturbed, quite frankly, and so she comes up with this idea, verse 14, Haman, oh honey, that's why I love you. Yeah, that's what he says. It pleases Haman, and so he has the gallows made. I imagine when the idea comes that in his angry 
uh, Haman, just a little smile, one of those cynical smiles starts to form on his face, and he's like, good idea, perfect. And all he has to do now is go to the king and get the rubber stamp of approval. And remember, he, he got the king to agree to kill an entire race of people without asking any questions. I'm sure the king will give him the approval to just kill one guy. And so that's the, the last thing that has to happen is he's got to go to the king and get approval. Now, that moves us now to chapter 6. We're going to do two chapters today, everybody. And it moves us to chapter 6. While Haman is at home having this... Uh, uh, stake put into the ground so the gallows put into the ground so that Mordecai can be killed on it meanwhile on another part of town the king at his palace just so happens to have a case of insomnia this particular evening we haven't read it yet but if you're familiar with the story you, you sort of know the situation and I draw your attention to that phrase it just so happens because we've been seeing that throughout the book of Esther these just so happens sort of events and this particular evening, there's a whole slew of just-so-happens coincidences. Again, this is not the first time, but it just so happened in the beginning of the book that this new king decided he was going to take on the tiny nation-state of Greece, way on the other side of the world. It just so happened that he felt it would be a good idea to have a six-month party to convince his officials and his military uh, officials that we have what it takes to go and to win this particular battle. It just so happens that he was moved in his heart to invite his wife to come in before that, and she refused to come. It just so happens that she lost her position, and now there's a vacancy in the kingdom for queen. And it just so happens there's this little Jewish girl, maybe not so little, but a Jewish girl that wins the beauty contest and becomes the queen. Again and again, you see all of these examples of things that are just so happens. And, you know, when, when something just sort of happens, one little thing here and there, okay, but when it's again and again and again and again, you have to begin to wonder, is somebody pulling strings behind the scene here? And of course, we know that it is our Lord. More properly than something going on behind the scenes, someone is working behind the scenes, that the Lord is orchestrating each of these events. And that's what we have here as we move into chapter 6. Let me read a few verses. It says, Now on that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been, done, uh, been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, well, nothing has been done for him. Now, we, we looked a little bit at these verses back when we were studying chapter 2. So if you've been with us, they may be a little bit familiar with you. You may recall back in chapter 2, Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate the king, a very real plot. The king, by the way, eventually was assassinated some 10, 15 years later. So it was a very real possibility. And Mordecai uncovers this plot. He told Esther, she told her husband, and so on. And as we saw at that time, no ceremony, no plaque, no special fa uh, fancy thing going on in the Rose Garden, none of these things. His good deed went unnoticed. And if you remember, when we were looking at that chapter, I pointed out that that could be very bothersome. Here I, I go out of my way to help at great risk to myself, and nobody even acknowledges what I have done. And Mordecai could have been embittered by that whole process. Now we know, now we discover why there was no recognition seven years earlier for the great good deed that he had done. Because as I said earlier, the timing was not yet right. 
it just so happens now the king has a sleepless night. And so he asks for the most boring reading material that he can think of, the minutes of the kingdom. Bring me the minutes of the kingdom that they would be read to him. Surely that'll put me to sleep. If you've ever been in a board meeting, you know they put you to sleep while you're sitting up there with the other people reading the minutes or having them read. What I find interesting, it just so happens that this man chooses the particular book and opens the page or the scroll, he rolls it out to that particular spot, and it just so happens that he begins to read about the assassination plot and how Mordecai foiled that whole thing. Again, somebody is working behind the scenes here that the servant would choose to read this on this night of all nights. Now, in my mind, I like to imagine that the, the guy that is reading this has one of those soft, quiet, golf analysis voices, and he's reading it kind of like this. I used to, when my wife and I were dating, I had to be home at 12 o'clock. Those of you young people, you should follow your curfew. And so I had to be home at 12 o'clock, and between 11.30 and 12 o'clock, there was this guy on the radio, and I don't know who he was or what he did. It was a Christian radio station, and we used to kid around because he had this voice like this. And here I am trying to drive and stay awake until 12 o'clock until I can get in my bed. And we used to always say, are you tired? And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. And your voice is putting me to sleep. You know, so that's who I imagine. This guy is reading it. He's got this little soft voice here. And finally, as, uh, as the king is sort of dozing off through this whole process, I imagine not really paying attention, just hearing that drone of a voice and then all of a sudden he hears about an assassination plot and that he jumps up sort of from his pillow and he says, what honor or distinction was given uh, to this man, Mordecai, for these things? And of course, the golf analyst, he, he simply says to him, nothing's been done for him, king. I imagine he's flipping back and forth in the pages. It doesn't look like anything has been done for him, Mr. King. And the king realizes that's ridiculous. The guy saved my life. Now, Just as that happens, it just so happens that somebody kicks over a pot in the the front courtyard there. Somebody makes a stirring. Somebody makes a noise. And notice verse 4, the king said, who's in the court? So it must be morning, or we're close to it. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king. And again, he was coming to speak to the king about having the very man who saved his life hanged. And so if he just comes in, he says, sir, I need your permission to have a guy executed. What's his name? Mordecai. Mordecai. Imagine. Just so happens. What a coincidence here that is going on. So he comes in there on the gallows that he had prepared. He wanted to have Mordecai hang. Verse 5, the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said to him, well, let him come in. All right, now, remember, you weren't allowed to go before the king unless you were invited to come in. You weren't even allowed to go into that court. But it seems Haman had permission that he was the prime minister, he was the chief advisor, he's the guy in the White House allowed to come in that private door to to talk to the president. And so uh, the king here, he's all excited. Somebody just saved his life. Nothing was done for him. He's just been awakened out of this sort of dozing off point of slumber. And he says, he hears this noise. He says, who's out there? And he invites Haman to come in. I imagine Haman is ready to give his little speech. Just enough facts Not too much so that he doesn't ask too many questions. I just want to get what I want to get done. I want to get permission to kill Mordecai. But before he can say anything, the king jumps in. And the king has stuff stuff that he wants to discuss first 
with his right-hand man, with his chief advisor. And so verse 6, he says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman is such a proud, arrogant jerk that he's convinced the king's talking about me. And so Haman now will begin to tell the king what he should do to honor the man whom the king delights to honor, thinking he's the man the king delights to honor. So he's going to tell him all the things he himself would like. For me, he should get him milkshakes daily, bring him to his room, you know, something like that. I would develop my own plan of what I want. This guy, what does he want here? So obviously the king's thinking of Mordecai. Haman thinks he's thinking of himself. And he says to him, as you see in verse 6, who would the king delight to honor more than me? What an arrogant statement that is. Even if you think that, tell yourself not to think that. And certainly don't say that. Verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes uh, be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights the honor. Notice a few things here. He says, draw up one of the king's horses. And so this isn't a run-of-the-mill horse. This is one of the special horses just for the king. Let him have essentially a horse-drawn chariot. He says, let the man who's placed atop that horse, atop that chariot, if you want to look in that picture, let him wear one of the king's royal gowns, one of his royal robes. All these references to the king. Let them parade that man, it says, through the city. And then he says, and command that the highest of officials, you know, grab the rope and kind of lead the, you know, the pony kind of thing. You see, like people, let him lead him through the city, all the while declaiming, Thus it shall be done to the one the king delights to honor. This is Haman's plan. Again, thinking this is what's going to happen to him. Now, I can't, ima- I can't help but imagine that Artaxerxes, Ahasuerus here, is thinking, hey, you think I'm talking about you, don't you? Why all the references to king garbs? Why all the references to crowns and royal robes and you know the, the horse of the king and all that? I wonder if uh, he begins to suspect Haman a little bit And this elaborate plan that he has here, it doesn't say that he does necessarily, but I would begin to wonder if this guy keeps talking about looking a lot like a king. I'm going to begin to think, I think this guy wants to be a king. But either way, the king says, perfect. I like your plan. Do it exactly as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. And he says in verse 10, hurry, take the robes, the horse, as you have said, do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and leave nothing out that you have mentioned, leave nothing out that you have mentioned, which would include the highest official in the land parading him around by taking the rope and leading the horse around. And who's the highest official in the land? Besides the king, it's Haman himself. Nothing more humiliating could you imagine for Haman than these particular circumstances, that he has to parade somebody else through town as if he were a common servant and the person that he has to lead through town is his arch nemesis and the guy that he hates and despises and who fills him with wrath. Now, Haman, of course, he can't ignore the king's command, verse 11, so he does what he's told. He, he puts the robe and the horse and he dresses Mordecai. He leads him through the city. He says, thus it is done to the man whom the king 
the lights of, to honor. Again, it must have killed him. Now, here's something I found interesting as I was just considering this. It's nothing special. You didn't have to dig deep into it. Just reading through the English version is last week when Esther sent Mordecai a change of clothes, he was in sackcloth and ashes, he wouldn't put on the change of clothes, you may recall. He said, no, I'm not just going to dress myself up. But now this guy brings royal robes, a change of clothes to put on, and he puts them on readily. And what I, what I think that might be speaking to is the fact that Mordecai realizes the tables are turning, that things are changing. We're not going to be destroyed. Look what the Lord is doing. I don't know that for certain, but it seems like something like that is going on, that God is now beginning the process of delivering the Jewish people, just as he knew God would do. Mordecai, that is. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Isn't this interesting that this parade is over and Mordecai goes back to work? Isn't that pretty cool? I just like this guy. He goes back to work there. And Haman goes home and he cries and he has his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. Now, almost prophetically, Haman's wife, the friends, they respond and they say, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. That's not what she said yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday she said, put him up on a stick or whatever. But it seems that either, even though she's an unbeliever, God sort of imparted this truth into her, or she had enough interactions in the past to see God's hand of blessing on the Jewish people but she just draws out this. She said, look, there's nothing we're gonna, you're going to be able to do to overcome Mordecai if he is of the Jewish people. Now, whatever the reason, Mordecai, or Haman has no time to kind of stop and think about this because as you see in verse 14, while they're kind of talking this out with his wife and others, that the king's servants arrive and they say, Haman, it's time for that big meal. Remember that big meal from the last chapter? I, honestly, I almost forgot about the meal uh, as we're discussing now what's going on with Mordecai. And so they come and they say, come on, it's time to go. The limo is here. And as we look at what's going on with the Jewish people, God doesn't always work according to our timing, but he does work. And he will accomplish his purposes. And I believe every one of us, if we had the ability at the end of our lives, just before you know, we die, if to just sort of stop and take inventory of our lives, we could look back and we could see the hand of God all along the way. I think when we're in the midst of it, you can't and we don't know and we, di- we think we're making our own decisions and choices and going about things, but the reality is God's hand is o- on us all the time and we don't always understand that until we have the, the ability of perspective. That's very comforting to me. I can't tell you how encouraged I have been during our study of Esther now, the last month or so, to just rest in God. That's what I'm getting out of this study for myself personally is that I can just entrust myself to the Lord and the direction that he takes my life. And I I hope that's what God is teaching you as well. Eric always likes to say this when he and I talk. He'll always say things like, God's got this. God's got this. And I think that's exactly what is going on here, that God's got this and he's got your life as well. And so perhaps today that's what the Lord would have us take away is that the Lord is sovereign. He's in control. And what I believe that means is the Lord would have us release ourselves fully into his care. I mean, how often we try to control things. God, I can't give you any more than this. I'll give you a little, but I can't give you any more. And the Lord says, you got to let go. You got to let go. You got to let go. He's got this. He has our lives. He's good. Amen. 
He's sovereign, and he loves you beyond measure, and he wants you to let go. I keep thinking I'll, I'll put this picture out there of the kid on the edge of the pool who's afraid to jump in, and mom or dad are in there and say, just do it. You're going to love it when you do, and the kid won't do it. At some point, you got, they got to jump in, and I think that's what the Lord would have for us is that we just simply let go and entrust ourselves to his care. Amen? We're going to stop there. Father, thank you for that reminder. Lord, I thank you that we can entrust ourselves to your care. And Lord, we know there's a lot of powerful things, people that are out there, but they don't combine that power with goodness. And so we don't want to entrust ourselves to their care, their, pow- their power, because of fear what they might do with it. And yet, Lord, we can completely entrust ourselves to you because not only are you capable, but you're good at the same time. And you desire good things for us. And Lord, as your scripture says, you're working all things together for good. And we pray, Lord, that uh, in sort of a fresh way, whether we've been a believer for a whole long time or uh, we're just starting out in our walks with you, Lord, that this day would really be a fresh day to entrust ourselves to you wherever we are in our walks with you. Lord, to just kind of lay ourselves down there and let you do what you're going to do. Lord, that's scary. It takes control away from ourselves, which isn't always comfortable. But Lord, we know that we've been created to be in no other particular place, no better place. And so empower us, help us, encourage us. As a group of believers, may we encourage each other, Lord, to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.